Hi everyone, welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I'm going to be introducing you to some pretty amazing members of the disabled community who are all trying to change the world in their own way. Today, we're talking to one amazing individual, Jason Bates. Jason is the lead communications and engagement manager at Tesco, and he's previously worked with broadcasters such as the BBC and ITV. I'm so excited for you to get to know Jason and find out about all the amazing work he's doing to try and improve the situation for disabled people across the UK. I want people with disabilities growing up now to have things a little bit easier than we had it, and I'm sure I have it easier than than people that were sort of 20, 30 years before me. I shared one of the most intimate details about myself with a company who then basically tore it up in front of my face. You know, it was activism at its finest because they were chaining themselves to Downing Street railings, they were chaining themselves to buses, they were throwing themselves out of their wheelchairs. Now that we're having these conversations, I'm proud of each and every one of of my colleagues across the UK that makes a difference every day for customers with disabilities. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on The Wheelchair Activist. I feel I need to let listeners know your dedication to being on this podcast because this is in fact a re-record because unfortunately the first um, attempt at this didn't work. So I just wanted to say an even bigger thank you for coming on and spending so much time with me. No worries at all, Emma. Happy to uh, happy to be here. Amazing. So could you tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Jason Bates. Um, I, I'm a country boy at heart. I grew up in uh, rural Cambridgeshire. Um, I have cerebral palsy, so I'm a wheelchair user. Um, and my sort of day-to-day work, I'm a lead communication and engagement manager for Tesco Maintenance. But I also happen to be um, the founder and very recently um, departing chair of Disability at Tesco, which is the um, a, a colleague network focused on disability for the entire uh, Tesco group. Thank you. And it's really your work through Tesco that you and I met. So you and I met when I was working on the consumer affairs policy team at Scope and when I um, was looking at disabled people's access to food during the pandemic and Tesco really stood out as a supermarket that was helping disabled people in that really stressful and really difficult time when everyone was you know very very worried about contracting COVID and we were in lockdown and all of that horrible stuff, but particularly for disabled people who were shielding or who might be clinically extremely vulnerable, who were even more afraid they were really relying on excellent customer service. Um, So that's how you and I met. And I 
wanted to have you on this podcast because I was just so blown away by the fact that you were being a champion of disability in this big organization and that I think you know a huge part of Tesco's public image as sort of the supermarket of choice if you will for disabled people is because they put resources and they put thinking and care into the customer experience for disabled people so I'm sort of curious you know you said that you're now no longer the you know sort of on the um on the board for the colleague network at Tesco but tell me a little bit about what prompted you to start that network Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a really recent change. So Tesco's introduced sort of tenure, um, length of tenure for network chairs. So, um, you know, six years of um, of hard work in the disability space. And before we set out, I, I should perhaps make clear that, you know, some of the things I'll talk about on your podcast are my own sort of personal views. They're not necessarily the the views of Tesco, but, you know, speaking about um, my experience with Tesco, when I came into the Tesco business, I'd I'd come from a sort of variety of backgrounds and I I was really clear that that I really care as a person who has a disability um, about, um, you know, parity in the workplace and equally parity for customers, you know, disabled people deserve fairness, um, probably more than anything, um, in, in my opinion. So, you know, the whole aspiration for disability at Tesco was to introduce a conversation to, you know, a major British retail chain that they weren't necessarily having. Um, but also helping them understand the benefits of doing that. Um, You know, Tesco as a business has a core purpose. So we talk about serving uh, customers, communities and planet um, a little better every day. And for me, you can't serve customers a little better by talking about just one type of customer. When you talk about customers in their broadest sense, you know, the aspiration for the Tesco business is that we serve all customers everywhere, no matter, you know, who you are or what you do. And that, that's really what I wanted to achieve um, by establishing the network. But I was equally acutely aware that I've quite a checkered past with, with Tesco. So my first job in Tesco, I actually got when I was a 16 year old. So I used to sort of slip into my local store and, you know, do my shift on the checkout. And I spent 10 years doing that. So Tesco is a a business that I know really, really well. But one of the most empowering thing for me is my local store actually had um, a manager who was a wheelchair user, so a department manager, a checkout manager in those days as they as they were. And so my experience in that store was really, really good because I was just treated like you know, like one of the team as it as it should be. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't lost to me when I, you know, re entered the Tesco business um 
some years later. So I guess it was driven by, you know, wanting to make a difference, wanting to make a change, but equally, um, you know, I want people with disabilities growing up now to have things a little bit easier than we had it. And I'm sure I have it easier than than people that were sort of 20, 30 years before me. Of that, I've got no doubt. So that, that was the sort of main aim, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, your example there of having the manager at the time when you were 16 be a wheelchair user, it's so, it speaks so well to the purpose of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is to provide representation for disabled people in a wide variety of jobs or areas of life so that they can view it as possible and think that there is a potential career in there for them if that's what they want. They don't need to go into disability necessarily. I mean, obviously, disability is a part of what you've done at Tesco, but that you're not hired there as sort of their disability advice, you know, advisor or manager or whatever it may be. And I really wanted to ask you as well, sort of in between you starting Tesco at 16 and when you later returned to it, you worked in broadcasting, so in television. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spent a large part of um, my career in in media and broadcasting. So I actually, it's quite interesting actually, because I talk about my time or my initial time with Tesco. What I didn't add to the end of that story was as well as schlepping in to uh, Tesco, you know, across those 10 years when I worked on the checkout, I actually got my first job at the regional ITV down in Bristol. And I was working at ITV during the week and then doing my Tesco shift after. So there was a period of my life when, you know, these two things absolutely met. So I was a program maker. You know, I've had some awesome TV jobs. You know, I've written scripts for CBeebies. So if any of your listeners have sort of small children, um, those, uh, those parts in between the show that are from the CBeebies house that you see in between your um, your programs. I actually used to script those. So I was writing sort of 40 um, scripts a week because believe it or not, those things are scripted. So when they randomly pick up and play with a ball um, or sing a song, um, all of that stuff has been, been sort of thought out. My favourite thing was to write songs because it was the most shameless um, thing to do because actually you'd pick from an archive of library music and then you'd obviously set your own lyrics to, um, to to this piece of library music that you'd chosen but you know they'd call you from the gallery and they'd go oh how does that song go and you'd, you'd be there sort of singing into your mobile phone uh, as to you know how you wanted this song to go but you know, I spent a large part of my career working in children's. I've worked in television program development. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, the, the things that these two things have in common and the job that I do now, I've pretty much worked in media and communications my my whole life. So 
you know, the job I do now for Tesco is just a reframing of of those skills and applying them to a more corporate setting rather than a broadcast setting, I guess. That's so interesting. I had no idea that you wrote scripts for CBBS. That's so that's so unique. And you know, it's I I completely sympathize with you a, a little bit because when I was picking the music for this podcast, myself and my producer Isabel, we spent ages going over this sort of library of copyright free music and trying to think, well, which one matches the mood best or which one comes across in the way that I want it to. So I can just imagine how long you spent every week trying to pick the right tune and then matching or writing lyrics to it. That's incredibly impressive i'm glad that you uh you feel that pain emma i really uh really <laughs> glad of that no i completely do and it's um it was fun but it why well, you know you you start to overanalyze it i think but i think if you were doing you know 40 a week you had to sort of have a quick turnaround but that's so interesting but i want to ask you this big question that you have answered before, but I want to ask it because I'm asking all of my guests this. It's what does disability mean to you? Mm. Um, disability, what does it mean um, mean for me? I, I guess for me, it means unique perspectives. It means a unique, um, unique viewpoint. Um, I'm really, really proud to... Um, to be a British man, but I'm also a British disabled man, and I'm proud of of that as well. Um, you know, I think for um, quite a few disabled people, you know, there are, and it's one of the frustrating things for me that disability obviously gets far too often gets grouped into. Um, you know, a challenge or an inconvenience. And let's make no bones about it. There are challenging things about having a disability. You know, it's not always a bowl of cherries. But I think for me, far too often people see disability as something to be shielded or not talked about or something quite shameful. And you know, I've never really felt like that. I've always liked to look at the positives of disability. So actually, I'm probably a good writer. I trained as a journalist, and I'm probably, you know, in part, those skills, I think, come from my ability to be a good listener. Because if you look how non-disabled people interact with um disabled people, my experience is they'll often share more. So they'll often be more candid or you'll come at things from a position of um, being able to unwrap something. So you intrinsically understand because you've seen it yourself of, um, you know, that person's not having a good day or they're not feeling quite themselves or they're not particularly right. So, you know, when we talk and when I talk personally about changing the conversation on on disability i really really mean it you know we need to change this narrative 
of disability being this gloomy thing. I'm not a gloomy person. Is disability challenging sometimes? Yes. Um, are things slightly harder sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, are there things that, you know, I would like to improve or do better? Absolutely, yes. But non-disabled people have those things too. And I, I think if we can just flip the conversation to actually, well, this is what disability gives me. You know, I'm a good listener. I understand when people aren't themselves. I you know, mm. I I go at things harder because I I often have this complex of all this stuff I've still got to prove. You you know what I mean? Um. So yeah, why can't we just reframe it in these are the benefits rather than talk about challenges all the time? It is something that gets my goat. That I mean, there's so many parts of that that I want to touch on, but I really liked what you said about. It sounds almost like you're describing an, a type of empathy that disabled people have towards anyone. Like you said, your ability to notice if someone's possibly off or not having a good day. I think that inherently comes from being disabled because we do deal with a lot of challenges, like you say. And I think because for so many of us, and you know, this may not be your perception of it but mine is that you know we we have to communicate what we need and what we want to people all the time just for them to understand or if it's if we need care or anything like that that we sort of have to become experts in articulating that so I don't know if that makes us better able to see it in other people if someone's struggling or you know whether that be you know they're struggling at work or they're struggling emotionally do you does that sort of make sense to you that resonates perfectly with me and uh, and you know i i think i think the other thing is i i often feel that people with disabilities are perhaps more patient um because for, for some things we 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 spend you know a lot of time waiting so uh, you know, we've waited or, or we waited a considerable amount of time for disability legislation to be enshrined in law. And mm. um, we waited um, for, you know, attitudes to shift. And now I think, I think what heartens me most about the um, diversity, equity and inclusion conversations that you're seeing, um, not only across industry but across the country as well is there's a real push now to to do things differently and and it's a really cool time I think to be a young disabled person growing up in the UK because you know I, I just see the way that things are absolutely changing still not as fast as we would like but things are definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that, you know, we're making progress all the time. And I think it's people who are, you know, individual activists who are using whatever platform they have to get their experience out there and their thoughts and opinions. But then I think what's so 
interesting as well as people like you who are trying to change that within a company culture. I mean, Tesco is, a, you know, it's a, they're a huge employer and trying to change that company culture, I imagine, could be really difficult, but it must be rewarding to see, you know, that, you know, again, this is just an example, but Tesco installing lots of changing places toilets in, you know, stores throughout the country. And so it's not just, I hate this expression, but I can't think of a better one, but, you know, it's not just talking talk. It's it's practicing what they're saying and it's putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for calling out um, changing places because there's so many people across the... Tesco business that actually, like any project that we deliver that work to sort of make that happen, our colleagues in property, you know, you've got our colleagues up and down the country that work in our retail operation that, you know, clean those facilities and and sort of make them a good place for, for customers to be. And I, I always preface this with a maybe because I'm never quite sure, but we are the largest private sector provider of changing places in in the UK so we're the largest private business in the UK I think in the world no no one's um, no one said for definite but I think in the world we are the largest um, private provider of changing places bathrooms so across our retail network we have over a hundred bathrooms and not not only that but we've position them um, as such so that there's an even spread across the UK because we we recognise that actually if you're in need of those facilities and you need to go to the loo, and let's face it, everyone does, um, that actually there's no point in having, you know, 60 of your bathrooms in Essex and, and none anywhere else. It's designed to sort of complement the, the network of those bathrooms. They, they actually become a really useful network for those customers that, that need to use those bathrooms. And, you know, for some, you know, finding a changing places bathroom that, that um, is big enough to accommodate their needs and has that specialist equipment is the difference between making that journey to see family and actually staying home and and not bothering and the more initiatives that you know we can land like that that actually make a tangible difference i'm not here you know on your podcast as some sort of tesco rent-a-gob um you know i'm here to um I'm here to really do things that really, really make a difference because if I'm not making a difference in this place, I'd rather just stay home, not do it, not, mm. you know, raise my thing. And, you know, disabled people have to start cashing these checks as well. So we can't do this without the support of the community and our allies. So everyone has a vested stake in doing this because you know if i provide changing places to more people that means more people can 
you know, just get that semblance of normality and nip to their local Tesco and go to the loo, which is a fundamental right. If they happen while they're in there, you know, to buy that packet of biscuits that they've been wanting, you know, hooray, I'll be delighted. Thank you for that. Everyone loves the bourbon or, a, you know, a hobnob or, you know, we could go to the ends of the earth to see what type of biscuits. But if they happen to do that, that's great. But that's not the, the primary motivation. The primary motivation for me is the more changing places we have in our stores, the more disabled people come into our stores. And then it makes seeing people with disabilities just that little bit more ordinary because, you know, they're seen with their children because believe it or not, disabled people do have children. Shock horror, <laughs> I know. Um, you know, they're seen with their children. They're seen with their families. They're seen with their care workers. They're seen with their loved ones. And what's really interesting to me is when you grow up as a disabled kid, your family are the ones that treat you like everybody else because you're their blood and and they know you. And I find that, that dynamic really, really interesting. That to my family, I'm just Jay. I'm not disabled Jay. I'm not Jason in the wheelchair. I'm just Jay. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that's how I know. My nephews absolutely love me to bits. And I love being the, the crazy uncle that winds them up and sort of lets them go and then hands them back at the end of the day. But I guess the sort of point I'm driving at is disability has to, you know, we've still got further to go in normalising disability in society, even now in 2022. But I want to play my part. And I know that when I look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day, that I did everything I could as a disabled person to make the UK a little bit fairer of a place to be. I I definitely resonate with that. I think it's, you know, I had the exact same experience with family and then with close childhood friends as well. You know, I wasn't disabled, Emma. You know, I was just Emma. And, you know, obviously I still am to lots and lots of people, but... It's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, what you said about normalizing disability and just that being in those community spaces, the supermarket or your local park or wherever it is, just seeing disability out and about makes it normal. And I think a lot of that starts in education settings. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned your family a bit and sort of this may cover this question but I'm really interested to know who were your role models when you were growing up oh gosh um I, I guess the one thing I I vividly um vividly remember um was something that I I saw um on the news and this is quite timely actually so I vividly remember as a teenager um seeing the protests and uh uh, 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 that happened around the advent of the Disability Discrimination Act. So I remember those mm. um, those disabled people. Obviously, that's been rolled into the Equality Act now, but they were, you know, it was activism at its finest 
because you know they were chaining themselves to Downing Street railings. They were, you know, chaining themselves to buses. They were throwing themselves out of their wheelchairs. And you know, some of these people would just not take no for an answer. And it's quite timely actually because there's a new sort of BBC drama coming out that will cover, you know, how the DDA came into into being. But I just remember watching that and for the first time thinking things are going to be different now. And 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 actually, you know, in some areas we've we've come so far and yet in other areas there's, there's still so much work to do. So I think seeing those... Um, those people doing that piece of work and really sort of pushing the government and holding the government of the day to, to, to really act and holding them to account. That, as a young disabled guy, was sort of pretty powerful for me, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I'm, I'm dying to see that program that you mentioned on BBC. I think it's called Then Barbara Met Allen. Um, and yeah, it's going to be all about those amazing protesters and activists that you mentioned. And I think it's really interesting that you had that disability representation at a young age. I mean, obviously, it's very newsworthy, um, you know, and it, it quite rightly deserves to be in the public attention. But I sort of ask people that question, anticipating that they won't have had many disabled role models because of that lack of representation. But I'm pleased that your experience is that, because I think it's so important to see disabled people achieving and fighting for what they believe in. But then you also had it in your place of work when you were a teenager. Um, So I think that's, that's really interesting, your take on disability from those two experiences. So I wanted to ask you, what is the hardest barrier that you've had to overcome? I know that's a million big question, but what would you say it is? The hardest barrier? I, I think um, I think I'd be lying if, um, if I, I, there's still this sort of perception gap so, you know, like many disabled people, I, you know, come with a whole heap of issues in terms of, you know, you, you never look in the mirror as a disabled person and see the real you or, or at least, um, you know, so I, I think a lot of disabled people suffer from, you know, body dysmorphia or, or sort of what they, what they look like because often you'll look in the mirror and, and, you know, the reflection you'll see doesn't represent necessarily how you, how you feel inside. Mm. So uh, I I think, you know, that's certainly a big barrier. I mean, I've had the classic ones in terms of, um, you know, uh, when, you know, when we've chatted, I've told you the story that, um, you know, I worked in television and media and broadcasting and I applied for, a job at a um, television intellectual property company. So they owned the rights to to various um, kids programs, um, and I won't say which ones because it all um, 
still link them them back to the company. The company's now defunct, um, by the way, so it, it's no representation of a present company. But I remember on the application form there was it asked about diversity data, and I ticked the box to because I always tick the box, and that's a that's a personal choice. People with disabilities. Mm you know, have the choice over whether to tick the box or not. And I tick the box, as I always do. And a few days later, I got a phone call back from the um, the recruiter and she said she was ringing connection with my application. And I thought, great, you know, this is great. The recruiter's calling. At which point she proceeded to ask me about, you know, my disability Um I explained that I was a wheelchair user, at which point she said to me that I couldn't, there was travel involved in the role. And I said, I know that that I love to travel. That's um, really what attracted me to to the role. Mm. She was like, well, we can't really guarantee the infrastructure of um, countries that you'd be sent to. And I was like, well, no, that's fine. I'm used to sort of thinking on my feet. Um, and she was like, oh, our, our office has no parking either. And then she went, so it's probably in our best mutual interest not to um, proceed with the application, at which point I was like, you blatantly used my diversity data to screen me out. And whatever sort of disabled boogeyman mm. that you thought I was, I'm sort of clearly not that. But that was a real experience for me of, you know, I shared one of the most intimate details about myself with a company who then basically tore it up in front of my face um, and did that. Uh, But, you know, part of me thinks, well, actually, if that's a way that a company would act, then I'm probably, what does that say about their corporate culture and how welcome I would have been made to feel there if I successfully got the job and mm. it was probably a lucky a lucky mistake to be quite honest but I just want to tell all of your listeners that you know things are a lot different now and there's often that question of do I or don't I tick the box and I would say you know always do if you feel able to do so because you know it means that you know, if there's any sort of workplace adjustment that you need or any of those conversations um, that you sort of need to open o- open up about, you know, that you need to share, it makes it so much easier to sort of do it at application stage rather than them waiting till, because invariably if people wait and then raise something in future, invariably they've done that because there's some sort of workplace issue there um, uh, rather than sort of uh, opening it up there. And the benefit of doing it and being up front is you don't bump into an issue because you've been open about it from the start, but equally it's personal choice. There are a couple of things that I really want to pick up in what you just said, but I think my first question there is, With that example that you shared about the job application and disclosing the disability, which I completely agree is 100% a personal choice. And I agree with you that it speaks volumes as to how you would have been treated 
in that organization if you had been employed. But I'm just thinking, what advice would you have for other disabled people? Because at any age, if that's the dream place for you to work, you know, when you've you know thought thought really hard about what type of organization do I want to work for? And then that's your experience. I'm not saying that that was it for you, but what advice would you give to people in that situation? Because you could fight it and challenge them on what, in your case, was quite obvious discrimination. Or do you chalk it up to, okay, they would have treated me poorly if if I had proceeded. So what? advice would you give someone in that circumstance and that's the thing I I think you know I thought about it long and hard and you know complexities of the legal system aside so it's still beggars belief for me that um you know disability discrimination act cases or equality act cases as they are now relate pertaining to disability issues must be heard in Crown Court, so they can't be heard in Magistrates Court. It must be must be heard in Crown. And um, there's no legal aid for uh, cases brought under the Equality Act. So what that generates is it generates a, a generation of disabled people that just chalk it up to experience because actually discrimination is so so difficult to prove because actually I didn't record that conversation at the end of the day it would have been my word against theirs they would have said that I didn't have the prerequisite skills for the role or something else and they would have you know dodged a bullet and it it is a source of absolute shame for me that you know my government are literally endorsing a course of action whereby people with disabilities, in my mind, are actively deterred by the legal framework of bringing cases under the Equality Act, unless they're supported by big organisations who, you know, wish to support them in, in bringing a class action. But those sort of instances of few and far between whereby you know say it's a goods and services issue you know nine times out of ten you're going to go well I'm not going to go to that closed shop again I'll just go to that one and then you get that element of of consumer choice but it shouldn't you know it shouldn't have to be that way and then to, to the first point which is probably the more sort of valuable bit for your your listeners, sort of what would I say to those disabled people that say, oh, that's, that's the company, that, that was my dream job. There's always another company. There, there's always another company. So, you know, I love my career in broadcasting. I love my career now using the skills that I, you know, use you know, turning around those scripts, the BBC in Salford, you, you know, it's a way of applying my skills. So don't ever, if I was speaking to, you know, a person with disabilities and they, they were here and we were having a, a bit of a chat, I would say don't ever sell yourself short like that. 
don't don't ever do that don't you dare there's there's always an opportunity there and if there's not an opportunity that you can see well go out and make one i started disability at tesco by opening my mouth and in typical jason fashion sticking my oar in and six years later we're you know a membership of 1300 odd colleagues across the business i get emails every day on various types of disability issues one of which um this week just one of the things that crossed my desk was a guy with down syndrome that was in a tweet that his um his aunt you know had tweeted she was so proud of her nephew um and he got his first job at Tesco and that for me is an absolute result because that kid is experiencing the rite of passage that every other kid his age goes through and to see him in that picture in his Tesco uniform just made me as as proud as punch because six years ago Tesco might not have been been in that place but now that we're having these conversations, I'm proud of each and every one of, of my colleagues across the UK that makes a difference every day for customers with disabilities. I think that's so powerful. And, you know, I completely agree that when you get those messages of, you know, something that you did or something that you put out on the internet or whatever it may be, it had a positive impact on another person. You sort of think, I've done my job today. And, you know, I get that through the blogs that I write. You know, I recently, well, recently, it was a little while ago, but I did an interview with Stylist Magazine about the lifting of COVID restrictions. And I got so many messages from other clinically extremely vulnerable people who said things like, because of what you said and because of getting your experience out there, I felt a little bit less alone today. And it's just the most wonderful feeling in the world when you hear that positive feedback. But I want to go back to something that you mentioned about the hardest barrier, um, and that's body dysmorphia. And I know that this is a really difficult topic and I know it's really big and very heavy but in particular why I wanted to ask you to talk about it a little bit more is because I don't think men in general talk about body image enough and how it can impact them and their mental health but I think it's also really important for disabled men to talk about it because I I know so many amazing disabled women who talk about body image but I can think of maybe one or two disabled men that talk about it so I just wanted to ask if you would share a little bit more about sort of your experience with that and about your you, when you said that when you look in the mirror it doesn't show the real you just are you comfortable telling us a little bit more about that yeah, and I, I think, look, I, th- I think as a man, you know, and if we if we talk about traditional gender roles, and I'm 
by the way, I'm not for one moment saying that that any sort of way of thinking is, is you know, right or wrong or, or sort of better than, than yeah. another. But, you know, certainly as a, a man in the UK, you're, there seems to be, especially the British, have a particular, you know, viewpoint of what a typical man should should do or be. So, mm. no, you don't cry at funerals. You don't, you know, outwardly express too much affection. Um, and this might vary from, you know, around the world because obviously different countries have, uh, you know, a, a different way of, bonding but it's that whole thing of you know men are meant to be sort of strong and powerful and don't get me wrong I am strong and powerful um my legs just don't look strong and powerful so you know I'm never gonna have you know the perfect pair of sort of pins to you know walk around on um and stuff like that you know um there's pressure on young men at the minute to have the chiseled jaw and the six-pack abs. Now, we know for people with disabilities, just moving around is a lot more tricky. So often, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, disabled bodies don't, you know, don't do chiseled abs. That doesn't mean people with disabilities can't get chiseled abs. It just means, you know, to push disabled people over the line is is just that much trickier and you know don't get me wrong I'm the, the person I was in the pool this morning you know I was in the pool yesterday the day before I'm on a real sort of fitness mission to because I came back from Mexico feeling uh, feeling very fat and overweight so um I, I made it my mission to um to sort of lose some lose some weight and the weight's sort of dropping off. But what really I guess made me feel good is um I actually um bought a load of new clubber. So I'm going to Morocco in a couple of days because I like like getting getting oh, around. Wow. So I bought I bought a load of stuff from um from I'll give them a plug from Gymshark um just to make myself uh feel uh, feel a bit good about myself and um it, you know stuff like that uh, that's what i would say if you've got sort of body dysmorphia and don't get me wrong i'm convinced that for, for young men it's the one of the things that just isn't talked about because lo- loads of young men have because they see all these sort of chiseled you know people in men's health or other publications are available um but you know the pressure on on young men now to sort of look good is is quite extreme the the pressure on every young person you know girls as well in terms of this disposable social media culture you know you've got to have the the perfect selfie picture or you've got to be doing the perfect thing or the perfect power or put the perfect filter on and you know for disabled people we can't just put the filter on because actually we come with a lot more some of this visual baggage um which just makes things complicated so in terms of body dysmorphia you, you know there are things that you know you can do as a disabled person so you know go out buy that piece of clothing that 
you're wanting um or you know do that thing that that makes you feel really really good because actually it's it's not always about um what are you going to do stare in the mirror for for half mm-hmm. your life do do the things that make you happy i think that's so important for all people to hear and i think particularly for disabled people who may be limited in either their diet or in the amount of physical activity that they can do if you can find ways to make yourself feel good about how you look then I completely agree go out and do it and I can just imagine my parents my carers rolling their eyes as I'm saying this thinking oh goodness I'm just gonna go and buy another pair of boots but you know like you said if it makes you happy and if it gives you a little bit of control back over your appearance when we don't have a lot of control with a lot of things on how we look then by all means you know go ahead and do it and you know thank you for being so open and honest about that experience because then it's not easy to talk about um even if you're more or less in an area where it makes sense for you to talk about it. I mean, for example, you know, I blog about life with a disability and my body image hangups has never been something that I felt comfortable talking about, even though it would make sense for me to be, you know, loud and proud about it. So, uh, yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing that with us. So... I want to, you've touched on this a little bit in different bits of this conversation, but what advice would you give to your younger self and to others like you? What advice would I give to my younger self? Um, The hair gel didn't work. Um, I'm going to need more there, Jason. (laughs) But, um... But in, uh, in in all seriousness, um, you know, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I think for young disabled people, you know, I alluded to the fact of, you know, more or less it's a great time to be alive. And I, I sort of stand by that. I equally, touching on what we've just talked about, equally it's probably a more socially taxing to some extent, time to to be alive with, you know, I I didn't have have to deal with, you know, the photo being posted on social media and being shared a, around, you know, five hundred contacts in in two seconds, and um, and you know, obviously we we're seeing the the stats on disability hate crime, and um, you know, go up, and social media, in my opinion, has it's part to play in that, um, you know, and 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 the rise in that statistic. But I would probably say to my younger self, um, have confidence in, you know, who you are. I mean, I've reached the stage in my life of you do grow into yourself. I think as a as a disabled person, so you grow into being sort of comfortable with. Because, you know, entering the professional world, you're like, well, do I mention this? Do I just stay quiet in terms of I don't want to rock the boat or I don't don't want to be 
seen as different or needing different things to sort of the rest of the workforce or all those bits and things. Now I've mellowed. I'm like, well, why not? If it's something that um, disabled people need, why didn't I have the confidence to say as a 25 year old guy, well, actually, I could really do with, you know, that accessible toilet or actually, do you know how much of a pain it is finding accessible accommodation? TMI. Yeah. You know, and, and all of that stuff. So I would say um, to young disabled people now, just don't be afraid of talking about what you need or sharing with your peers the bits of your life that you're comfortable with because actually people don't know until you tell them and and they don't realize stuff that's necessarily going on and they're not going to know that until you tell them so if you've got the confidence to do so i wish 20 years ago i was as confident to to almost come forward and be as confident as i am now because you know in my day job now if there's something that's not right for a disabled colleague, our mantra is, well, let's fix it. Let's make it right. How do we start from a situation of our default answer always being yes? Um, you know, and and how do we look at things through that lens rather than actually waiting for disabled people to say, well, actually, I'd like this or this isn't right or this is a bit of a struggle you know how how do we start from where our default answer is yes and actually mm. we're we're making those changes because actually we see the value of of that person working for us and 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 i think that once you've once you've done that paradigm shift once you've sort of shifted your way of thinking it just becomes like that person needs that pair of gloves to do their job. That person needs that pair of outerwear to do their job because they work in the field. Oh, actually, Jason needs an accessible bathroom or a parking space. It just becomes, you know, that little bit more normal. And uh, and that that's what I wish, you know, my 20 years younger self, had, uh, that's what I wish I could tell myself, I guess. I think that's, again, it's so important for all disabled people to hear that because I know that when I was running a work experience program in a previous role, it was for young disabled people living in London. And I always told them, do not suffer in silence. You know, this was, per this program was specifically for young disabled people to test out the workplace test out adjustments that they need in an environment where they would feel really supported. But even then, some of the participants still didn't feel 100% comfortable saying, actually, if I could come in half an hour later, that would make a huge difference. So, you know, that was a big culture shift that I was trying to make there. And I think, you know, that did really succeed, but it would be wonderful if that applied to all workplaces. And I love what you said there about the default answer being yes, not going in thinking, 
oh, they're probably going to say no. And I think just, you know, for listeners in terms of reasonable adjustments and, you know, adjustments in the workplace, I think if you don't know what you need, then reach out to people in the community who have experienced these things before and may have little tips and tricks for you to try or say, you know, I actually tried compressed hours and that allowed me to have a day to rest or, you know, whatever it may be. So I would definitely recommend reaching out to people to see what worked for them. And if you do know what works for you, I completely echo what you said about don't be too afraid to ask for it because it's so much better to ask for it and let the employer know what you're needing to achieve your absolute best because that's what they want but that's what we want as well you know we want to go in and you know I you've said this before but you know really feel that you've achieved something in your work day it's it's a wonderful feeling yeah absolutely oh well Jason thank you so so incredibly much for joining us on the podcast and as well because it's the second time I just I so appreciate you giving up an extra hour of your time to talk to us but I'm so pleased that we did because I think your experiences are one that disabled people and non-disabled people really need to hear and I hope that people will have gained some advice from it and also learn how important it is to also be an ally so yeah thank you so much no worries lovely to be on uh, on the podcast emma and i wish you uh, wish you every success with it thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist it has been such a pleasure talking with jason and discovering that like myself you really can become a champion of disabled people completely by accident. We at The Wheelchair Activist are committed to inclusivity and accessibility. And as part of that, we have set up a GoFundMe page and a Patreon where we're asking listeners to contribute what they can so we can invest back into this amazing project to hire a podcast producer to make sure that this podcast is as accessible as possible and to work with an accessibility auditor who will make sure that all of the written content on the wheelchair activist website is meeting accessibility standards i would love it if you could contribute what you can to this passion project of mine and if you're not able to give it a share and maybe you'll have a rich uncle who can donate to this amazing project thank you so much again for listening to this episode and you can find us on all of the social media platforms and make sure that you don't miss out on a future episode speak to you soon bye